In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, the hokey-cokey of British politics continues. Liz Truss is out of Downing Street. Rishi Sunak is in. We'll assess what impact the new Prime Minister will have on EU-UK relations and, critically, on the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations. We'll have an update on where those negotiations are at and whether Britain's brutal subjugation by the bond markets will force Rishi Sunak into a more flexible frame of mind on the protocol. Not if the DUP can help it. Good as their word, the party decided not to enter Stormont before the midnight deadline on Thursday night, which means an election is on the cards in the North, but we don't know yet exactly when. And we'll hear from the Brexit team at Queen's University Belfast on the latest attitudes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. But first, let's go to Chris Heaton-Harris's press conference. He was speaking this afternoon, Friday, as we record this within the last hour, where he said there would be an election, but he wouldn't quite say when. Firstly, this is a really serious situation. As of a minute past midnight last night, there are no longer ministers in office in the Northern Ireland Executive. Now, I do not have to call an election immediately. I've listened to the party leaders and I'm going to talk to them all again next week. Um, But um, I will be calling an election. So, Chris Heaton-Harris there, Tony, all that sounds like a bit more uncertainty. So, you've also been looking at if an election does indeed happen in Northern Ireland, the issue of the protocol and public attitudes towards it. Who have you been talking to? That's right. Well, I've been talking again to David Finnemore, who we've we've had on the podcast before. He's leading uh, a team at Queen's University Belfast uh, who are looking at all aspects of Brexit, and they've been carrying out uh, a range of surveys, a range of surveys over the past uh, couple of years on uh, attitudes to Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. So here's what he had to say: David Finnemore from Queen's University. Thanks once again for joining us on the podcast. J- just remind us again of the, the these series of surveys that you're doing with Lucid Talk? Yeah, we're running a a three-year project looking at the implementation of the protocol. It's a research project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK. Um, And one aspect of it is we're trying to sort of test the temperature of voters' views around the protocol and Brexit to get a sense as to to what people are are feeling, thinking about various issues. This is the sixth of nine polls that we're doing. They're conducted about every, every four months. Uh, we get about sort of two and a half, three thousand people responding, and then the the polling company um, waits the, the uh, takes a weighted sample of about fifteen hundred, and we um, get results there um, to try and sort of reflect as as best as possible the, the nature of Northern Ireland society. And the polling happened when exactly? Because if I remember correctly, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was introduced in early June. Yes, this one took place on the seventh to tenth of October. 
um, actually at a time which was relatively quiet. It would have fall, fallen within the it fell within the Tory Party conference, but on terms of the protocol, that was a fairly re, a quiet uh, conference. Okay, so so this time around, what what are the major findings, and are, are we seeing any trends or patterns compared to previous polls? I think we're basically seeing a continuation of the the, the trends which we've got, which we've identified, and that is you, you've essentially got a sort of narrow majority broadly accepting of of the protocol um, as it currently stands with with the grace periods. You've got um, three quarters, two thirds, three quarters of people saying, "Hey, you do need particular arrangements for, for Northern Ireland." You've got, as we found in the last poll. 35%, 32, 35% of people without really many concerns about the, the protocol, even if it was fully implemented, but at the same time, 55, 56% with genuine concerns about it. And of those, um, the big issue that is currently concerning people um, or is top of their agenda is things like sort of parcels coming from, from GB and customs declarations around that, the movement of goods, the movement of, of pets. Um, sort of practical issues which, which which people might face, particularly if the if the protocol uh, were fully fully implemented. Um, what you're also seeing is trust levels in the UK government remaining very low. Uh, we were down at seven percent this time round, which is actually a small increase on on the previous poll. The likes of the EU and Irish government, it's sort of broadly split equally, 45 percent trust distrust for them. Political parties. Um, Alliance and SDLP, um, similar to, to, the, to the Irish go uh, government and, and the EU, um, DUP distrusted the most. Um, but then once again, levels of trust within the DUP have slightly increased from, from lows at the end of last year. Um, what we've also seen is that if come 2024 and the consent vote, you've got a, a slight majority in favour of um, MLAs voting in favour. Um, so the, these are broadly in line with what we've seen over the last number of, of polls. Okay, so in terms of those people who say that the protocol should be just scrapped altogether, is is that crystallised in any of your findings? Yeah, I, th I think th throughout the, throughout the polls, there's always been been about sort of a quarter who are resolutely opposed to to, to the protocol uh, on a matter of principle. Um, and I think this this time round, when we've sort of putting questions about like well if there were a resolution to the outstanding issues would you become more inclined to potentially support the protocol and no, no matter what the situation it seems that there's always going to be a hardcore about 25 percent a quarter um who want the protocol to go broadly speaking do, does it look like people in northern ireland are taking a fairly pragmatic uh approach to the protocol yes on balance it's a better thing to have to deal with the post-Brexit arrangements in Northern Ireland. Um, yes, it could be improved. Um, are, are there any sort of outstanding findings which are fairly stark in, in your view? I think I think what, one of the findings which is interesting is that um, if the UK and the EU reached agreement on outstanding um, issues, so there, there was a significant reduction in um, checks and controls from GB to NI, and this benefited the Northern Ireland economy, then you've got more people indicating that they would support the protocol. Um, so that um, I, th I think it's about 17% would say, well, if there's a deal, if it's good for the Northern Ireland economy, then we would probably switch to supporting MLAs voting in favour of it. And this could go up to the high 60s. But that still then means you've, you've got a quarter, a third of the electorate opposed to the protocol, irrespective of what might be agreed between the UK 
um, and, and the EU. Um, I think an another finding which we, um, uh, we, we were struck by this time is we asked a number of questions about where people get their information on the protocol from, um, because about three quarters say they've got a good understanding of the protocol. Um, but then again, there's a lot of complaint. There's not lack of reliable information. What we found is that um, the people who or the source of information which is most trusted is the political parties for whom people would be willing to vote. Mm. Um, and so therefore, the, the, the position which political parties take on the protocol is very influential in, ter in determining how people who might vote for them view the protocol. Okay, and there's a finding in there as well about the idea of the UK taking unilateral measures through the through the legislation. What what do people think of that? Okay, the the um, well, there's I think it's about a, a third would be happy if the UK did take unilateral action. Um, the majority clearly don't want the the UK um, to to do so. Uh, we we've got um, uh, just looking at the percentage. Uh, now, if there were unilateral action, 36% um, of people say the UK would be justified in taking it, um, even if it were a breach of international law, but 60% disagree. So three in t um, six in 10 disagree with the UK taking unilateral um, action. 71% um, um, would wish that for there to be or would prefer there to be a negotiated UK-EU settlement rather than there being unilateral action. But then again, 22% say they're not. They're not concerned by that. They they disagree that a, a negotiated settlement would be preferable. So this, this thing comes back to that that point. There's a, there's a very solid element within Northern Ireland society who who reject the protocol fully. Um, if the UK did take unilateral action, um, half of people, fifty two percent, say the EU would be justified in um, taking retaliatory action, um, even if that in, included potentially suspending trade provisions of the UK EU trade and cooperation agreement. Thirty seven percent disagree. Um, but fr from this, obviously, okay, unilateral action is not the preferred option. Um, there's a strong desire to see um, a negotiated outcome. Um, on that, we did ask whether people, given the current mood music, supposedly improving between the UK and the EU, whether they're optimistic about there being a, a positive outcome to the negotiations. Um, it's less than half think that uh, there there would be, or there are less than less than half are optimistic. Um, and 30-40% are disagree that they'd be optimistic. So um, even though the mood music has, has shifted, people are holding judgment on this one. Okay. So, David, at the time of uh, where, where we're talking, we're talking on Thursday afternoon, um, it looks pretty certain now that there will be elections called for December in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Do, do these polls indicate that people have settled into fairly rigid blocks, perhaps along party lines, as to where they stand on the protocol. And what might that say about the DUP's prospects for getting a better result in these elections than they did in the May elections? Okay. I, I think what, we've, um, what we, we see from this is, as I said, that given the proportion of the population which seem to be resolutely opposed to the protocol or looking for a hard line on the on the protocol um, to, to, to be taken, then one would anticipate that uh, with the DUP taking a hard line, they're, they're likely to see some sort of in, some increase in, in, in their vote. And whether that would be enough sort of for them to take first place or not is very much open um, to question. I think what we're also seeing, however, is those 
strong proportion of people, two thirds, really frustrated at the fact that uh, we've not got an executive in place and do not, do not see the protocol as being justification for there not being an executive. So 65% agree that the executive should be established regardless of what actually happens with, with, the, with the protocol. So um, I doubt the DUP will be getting too many of, of those votes come December, assuming that's when the election will be. Okay, interesting stuff there, Tony. We'll see how that plays out in an election campaign if there is an election campaign and there isn't another fudge. But for the purposes of this podcast recorded on Friday, we'll have to take Chris Heaton-Harris at his word and assume there will indeed be an election. What there is definitely is a new Tory leader and Prime Minister in Downing Street. What's the first read on Europe's attitude towards Rishi Sunak? The the first thing you can say with absolute certainty is that people are delighted that it's not Boris Johnson. Uh, And I think there were were some fears last weekend that by some miracle of science uh, and and uh, voodoo that having come back from the Dominican Republic Boris Johnson would magic his way back into Downing Street um, and there were probably some nervous people in Paris and Berlin and Brussels uh, but obviously that, and that London come let's face it and, I mean on, on that they have something in common with the Tory party <laughs> exactly uh, so um, as, as things unfolded clearly Johnson didn't have the numbers, although in his extraordinary statement, uh, which was very Trumpian in its uh, chutzpah and self-aggrandizement, he clearly didn't have the numbers and pulled out and that left the field fairly wide open for Rishi Sunak. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, who was um, the other runner, she pulled out as well. Um, I think a key moment was when Suella Braverman, who is the the darling of the right wing of the Conservative Party, threw her weight in behind Rishi Sunak, and I think that meant that the the contest was pretty much over. So wh- wh- where does that leave us? Well, yeah, relief that it's not Boris Johnson. I think cautious optimism that Rishi Sunak is now the person they'd be dealing with because he, even though he is known as a fairly convinced Brexiteer and, and was like go, going back quite some distance, um, he was also known as a moderating voice in the cabinet in the Boris Johnson administration and himself and Tom Scholar, who was the permanent secretary of the Treasury, were uh, the voices against any rash triggering of Article 16 by Boris Johnson, egged on by uh, Lord Frost, um, because they were concerned about what that would do uh, in terms of a trade war with the uh, EU and the British economy. Now, since the extraordinary developments of the past couple of weeks, that is now a much more prominent issue in the minds of uh, European capitals, European leaders. To what extent has the the brutal subjugation, as we mentioned, of the British political system by the bond markets, what impact will that have on Rishi Sunak and his room to manoeuvre uh, on the Northern Ireland Protocol? If the markets could do so much damage to the pound and to the British economy and to interest rates because of a mini budget, uh, could there be an equally damaging reaction if the UK presses ahead with a Northern Ireland Protocol bill and enters into a full, fully-fledged confrontation with the European Union, which could end up in, in some kind of a trade war. Uh, so it's a mixture of relief and a, an acknowledgement that Rishi Sunak is probably more of a grown-up in a room. And, and this idea as well, which has 
picked up a lot of commentary in in the UK that Sunak draws a, a, a thick line under the years of populism of, of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, um, which flowed from the whole Brexit uh, experience and, and experiment. Um, he, he's now a lot more sober, and that sobriety is is likely to encourage people in Brussels and other capitals to to think that that he will be serious about getting into talks with the the, the European Union. Uh, that being said, the question is still there about the, the right wing of the party. Has he promised them anything? And if so, what is what has he promised them? Or is the inclusion of Suella Braverman with all the controversy that she attracted is is that a sufficient price to pay to the right wing of the party? But we also heard from Steve Baker, the arch Brexiteer, that and currently a minister in the Northern Ireland office, that the ERG did secure promises on an absolutely hardline approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol, and they expected delivery on that. Although it did split the ERG. The, the, yeah, the, so, the leadership contest, should I say, in the Tory party. Yeah, the ERG were not able to settle on a single candidate, um, but the, they said that they had extracted assurances from both candidates, both Penny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak, that they would take a robust line on the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and that Sunak would, if necessary, uh, use the Parliament Act, which is uh, basically it's a manoeuvre to make sure that the House of Lords doesn't hold up a a Commons uh, government bill, um, and, and this was seen as a promise by Rishi Sunak to the ERG that he would remain faithful on on the the hard line on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, having said that, um, it it doesn't look like the House of Lords was going to deliberately delay the Northern Ireland Protocol bill. Um, so that might have been something of an empty promise. But again, we don't know exactly what he said in private conversations with the ERG. Um, w- one way of looking at this is already we have seen Sunak pulling back from some of the more heady uh, pro-Brexit policies of his predecessor, such as the EU retained law bill. This was a promise by Liz Truss uh, to have a bonfire of all of the uh, EU um, coloured and EU flavoured law which still resides in British uh, statutes, uh, something like two and a half thousand laws that uh, were essentially derived from EU directives and regulations. Uh, now, Which sounds great, but it gums up the work of government trying to achieve that. And when you're in the middle of a fully fledged fiscal crisis in an economy and you're trying to re-establish faith with the markets and I suppose start preparing for the next general election that's hardly the kind of thing you want to be spending your time on yeah it, it's that that's true and and also you know repealing two and a half thousand laws by the sunset clause of 2023 which is what Liz Truss had talked about and and Jacob Rees-Mogg her her or business secretary, um, you know that that is a massive undertaking that would require hundreds and hundreds of civil servants to, to work around the clock, and the risk is that uh, laws would fall away, but would not be replaced by good laws or or even replaced at all. In some cases, that th- there is a risk that this would cause bureaucratic chaos. Uh, and interestingly, when he was competing against Liz Truss during the summer. Uh, Rishi Sunak made this video of him putting uh, big stacks of A4 
paper into a shredder to the sound of uh, Hymn to Joy or Ode to Joy, the, the European anthem, uh, and, and you know, boasting about how, how in the first hundred days of his administration he would shred thousands of EU laws. Um, now, I think the events of recent weeks have, have softened his cough a little bit, and it was reported in the Financial Times this week that that wasn't going to happen, uh, nor would they replace uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's role as uh, with somebody else taking on the, the, the position of Brexit Opportunities Minister. So you can see that sobriety creeping into this new administration. Um, it, it, that's a a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you might think that that would uh, extend to how he deals with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Uh, But at the same time, if he's taken away those pro-Brexit initiatives, then he may need to keep something for the the right wing of his party, some red meat there. uh, And that could be the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. So it remains to be seen if he does actually take a hard line on that or not. Sure, and he he thinks the Northern Ireland Protocol is bad for stability and the longer events keep tri- keep trundling along in, the, in Northern Ireland as they are going at the moment with no executive up and running and the prospect of elections causing people to retreat to their trenches and entrenched positions, he could be proven right regardless of whether people think the positions that are being adopted are good in good faith or not. The facts of the matter are that there is now instability in Northern Ireland and the label on that is the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, well, if, just to go back to, to how this all sort of germinated, it, it was this idea that because unionists didn't like the protocol, therefore the Good Friday Agreement was at risk and there was, uh, you know, by definition instability in Northern Ireland. And this was the argument that was led by David Frost and Boris Johnson that the protocol had to essentially go because one community didn't like it. Um, and, and there was a kind of a coded invitation to the DUP to to swallow that narrative whole and say, well, yes, that's true. And, and how can you have the institutions of the Good Friday up and running if one side of the community doesn't accept the protocol? Um, so that was the, that was where the stability issue came from, and and a lot of people in Dublin and Brussels were really angered by this interpretation and narrative, saying, "Was well, well, if you keep saying the protocol is destabilising Northern Ireland, then it will, uh, and and you it know, has, the, the, and it has, and absolutely, um, the the argument from the EU would be, uh, if there are problems with the protocol, there are ways of fixing it, and one of those ways is not to." Uh, raise the temperature and raise expectations by introducing unilateral legislation, and and this is the, this is the hook that the DUP now find themselves on because they have said that they will not go back to Stormont until that legislation is enacted, or uh, or its its provisions have come to pass and the protocol is either replaced completely or or radically changed. Uh, so so that's really where where, where things stand. Um, I suppose we should talk about where things are at with the the, the legislation itself. Well, that's what I was going to say. You, you you were mentioning there earlier its progress through the House of Lords, where presumably there will be amendments tabled by a House which is largely in favour of the withdrawal agreement deal, or at least in fa- in favour of having stable relations with the European Union and not breaching international law. So, where do things stand as far as progress through the House of Lords go, and what chance of 
as any moderation or amendment got uh, as it comes back to the Commons? Well, the, the House of Lords is, is going to play a, a critical role, I think, now over the over the next couple of months. And even when the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was introduced back in June, I mean, I spoke to British officials who said, well, look, you know, this is going to take forever to get through the, the House of Lords. They, they might delay it. They might have lots of amendments. And then in the meantime, we can crack on with the negotiations with the European Union and, and get a deal. And then who needs to worry about the Northern Ireland Court Protocol Bill? So the bill has gone through the, the Commons. It's now had a, its second reading in the House of Lords. Um, and any amendments that are added by the, the, the Lords will be voted on sometime after the 21st of November. Uh, now, a couple of things to say. Uh, certainly, th- in the second reading, there were there was a majority of peers who spoke out about their real concerns about the bill, notably the fact that there is such a thing that as the sanctity of international treaties and they would argue that the protocol bill breaches that sanctity and that's something that could turn up in an amendment. Um, Also, uh, Lord Canoole, who's a a crossbench peer, meaning he's not subject to any party whip, he has talked about the need for uh, much more scrutiny of the bill because it gives ministers sweeping powers to fill in the gaps when they remove elements of the existing protocol and they can fill in those gaps in a way that is not subject to any parliamentary scrutiny. Which is a concern and, uh, that's entirely separate to the Northern Ireland Protocol, Bill. It's it's one of governance. Uh, as exactly, well. yeah. yeah. But, but it, it, it's, it, it's indicative of the, 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 the amount of concern in the House of Lords about this. Um, and I think out of 60 lords who spoke at the second reading 40 of them uh, expressed their concerns um so there is a view that there could be a lot of amendments to this uh what happens to those amendments now this is getting into slightly complicated territory that we don't normally cover on this podcast but um if there is if there are amendments then they have to be voted through by the lords um one uh peer has talked to me about the problem of Boris Johnson having uh, installed over a hundred uh, of his favoured people into the House of Lords. A lot of them would be Conservatives. David uh, Frost a lot of them is one of them. David Frost, absolutely. Um, Arlene Foster as well. Kate Hoey, all strong Brexiteers who will vote uh, according to the government line on this. So it will be a challenge for, the, for those who are opposed to the bill or who have concerns about it to get enough numbers to uh, to, to to win these votes on the amendments. Now, if they do, what happens is the amendments go back to the House of Commons. Traditionally speaking, the, the Commons will reject uh, the government of the day, which has a majority, in this case a big majority, will reject the amendments, put in amendments of their own, and then it goes back to the Lords for what we call ping-pong. Uh, now, this process could go on, on until after Christmas, certainly. Um, that would give the negotiators that bit of extra time to try and get a deal right um but but you know it's it's a uh, 30 minutes of extra time uh, and no goals have been scored yet so uh, it's it's hard to see right. how, how much this extra time will 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 provide uh, for negotiators but i mean the, the ultimate point is that essentially the government of the day wins out um over this process um if we go back to the withdrawal agreement bill of 2019, there were five amendments that the Lords 
uh, voted in in favour of uh, between November and January uh, 2020. And Boris Johnson rejected all five of those amendments. And famously, there was one by Lord Dubbs, the Dubbs Amendment, which would have ensured that children uh, of refugees would be re- reunited with their families in the UK. That that was an amendment that got in there and it was rejected by uh, the government of the day. So ultimately, a government with a strong majority will win out. Um, but the, the very fact that these issues are being debated in the Lords does draw quite a lot of attention to the issues uh, and that that will uh, clearly feed into the debate about whether this Northern Ireland Protocol Bill should be happening at all uh, or whether the government should pause it while they're carrying on with the European Union in the negotiations or whether they should somehow uh, water it down. All right, well, let's finish out on those negotiations because back to this whole thing of the mood music and the re-establishment of at least decent personal relations and I can't remember exactly the terminology that David Frost used but he certainly advocated taking a more robust attitude towards uh, the negotiations and making sure that he, at least there was an attempt made to put the European Union on the back foot in any and every engagement. Things have changed in terms of the mood music. What about the substance? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, there's been a big major bump in the road with the whole Liz Truss transition, and and that has clearly slowed down things a bit. But I'm told that technical talks have been pretty much ongoing week after week. They're meeting in London or in Brussels. There's a lot of exchanges of emails. They're getting into a lot of detail about the issues. So we're talking about customs. We're talking about the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We're talking about tariff rate quotas on things like steel Uh, so a lot of that work is ongoing I'm told the mood music is good there's people in Brussels are pleased that James Cleverley has stayed in his post as has Chris Heaton-Harris the Northern Ireland Secretary that just means that there's continuity we don't have to start re-establishing relationships but I don't think there's any big breakthrough yet Um, one official I spoke to today said it's not like towards the end of the of the trade and cooperation agreement you had uh, you had paragraphs in green and paragraphs in red meaning the green paragraphs were were boxed off and, and concluded uh, and they were focusing on the red paragraphs we're not at that stage yet um, so I think this will this will certainly take some time but but again you know the atmosphere is good and we're waiting to see really what kind of person Rishi Sunak is going to be uh, in terms of these negotiations? Is he going to be the pragmatist who's really meticulous and cautious and keeping one eye on the markets? Or is he going to be, uh, again, confrontational, uh, keeping one eye on, on the, the right wing of his party? And, and, and no doubt the DUP and the situation in Northern Ireland as well. All right, that's a good place to leave it for this week. From me, Colm O'Mungoin, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.